expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I've been asked to give sanctuary to someone who believes she's been treated unfairly. I can't ignore that. We're the ones being treated unfairly. Do you know how long we've waited to be given a cogenitor? Given? You sound like you're talking about some inanimate object. You have no right to judge us. You know nothing about our culture. What if one of your stewards, the men who are forced to serve you food, what if they should ask us for asylum? They're not forced to do anything. I apologize. But it's easy to misunderstand someone when you know nothing about their culture. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, February 10th, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today. Bob and I are going to be talking about the multifaceted issue of multiculturalism. From Pearson to Harper, Cameron and Merkel on the failure of multiculti. Gert Wilders and Lights Out in Europe and Theocracy and Multiculturalism. And as always, feel free to call us at uh, 519-661-3600 or look us up on the web at um, justrightmedia.org where you can download an entire archive of all of our shows in the past four-odd years. Or you can also look us up on chrwradio.com where you can listen live via streaming. Wow, lots of ways to listen. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, let's start off the uh, show with a bit of a background and history of multiculturalism in Canada as if people didn't know how it all began or have at least an inkling of how it all began. But no one prime minister or government can be said to be responsible for our current multiculturalism policies. The problem began with the signing of the United Nations 1965 International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination by the government under liberal Lester B. Pearson. Pearson went on to establish a royal commission on bilingualism and biculturalism, meaning English and French, which dealt with, among other things, the contribution of other ethnic groups to the cultural enrichment of Canada. Now, this commission reported in 1969 to the government under liberal Pierre Trudeau, who implemented its recommendations, one of which was to, quote, assist cultural groups to retain and foster their identity. And I think that's an important and key recommendation that came in with Pierre Trudeau to assist meaning money, cultural groups to retain and foster their identity. Later on, Trudeau, under Section 27 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which came into effect in 1982, states that, quote, this charter shall be interpreted in a manner consistent with the preservation and enhancement of the multicultural heritage of Canadians. So in other words, multiculturalism in 1982, was now enshrined in the Constitution. In 1987, under the Conservative government of Brian Mulroney, the House of Commons Standing Committee on Multiculturalism issued an extensive report 
that called for the enactment of a new policy on multiculturalism and the creation of the Department of Multiculturalism. And finally, in 1988, again with Mulroney, the Conservative in power, the Canadian Multiculturalism Act was passed and our fate as a single cohesive nation was sealed. Now that brief history shows that the blame for official multiculturalism is split between the Liberals and the Conservatives and every Prime Minister from Lester Pearson to Stephen Harper is also to blame. Harper bears the blame equally for his inaction in not even attempting to repeal the previous legislation. It is not even on his political agenda. So any reprieve from official multiculturalism will not be coming from Stephen Harper. But what does multiculturalism mean? To many, it doesn't sound very bad. No, when you first said that, I, I'm assuming, weren't we always multicultural? That's yeah. what the birth of this country was all about, was many cultures. Yeah, multiculturalism by itself is just a word, doesn't mean too much, but mm -hmm. when you put the word official in front of it, now you've got a problem. To many, just multiculturalism doesn't sound that bad. Some may think, hey, what's wrong with allowing people to follow their own cultural practices? Could it mean anything worse than having many ethnic foods to choose from or getting used to seeing people dress differently or hearing a different language in our big cities on the streets? Well, yes. Besides the obvious expenditure of billions of dollars spent in the ministry, official multiculturalism has meant the curtailing of any speech which is, quoting the Human Rights Act here, likely to expose a person or persons to hatred or contempt by reason of the fact that person or those persons are identifiable on the basis of a prohibited ground of discrimination. Unquote. It has meant imprisonment, fining, and harassment of countless Canadians for daring to speak on the topic of religion, particularly Islam. It has meant international ridicule as wave upon wave of immigrants hop planes or board boats to come to this socialist dystopia called Canada with a guarantee that they will have cradle-to-grave support without having to lift a finger. It's meant the erosion of the institutions which, under the parliamentary system we inherited from Britain, previously safeguarded us from threats to our rule of law. And it has meant government-sanctioned racism in the form of discriminatory quotas for government jobs. So, official multiculturalism, while sounding like it only means we're able to buy a falafel at the corner store, means a lot more. Generally, the word official means force. Official yeah. means force. Yes, that's literally what it means. So yeah. it's not no longer multiculturalism, it's forced multiculturalism. Official means money, official means yeah. jail, official means crime. That's what official means. You put that in front of the word multiculturalism, all of a sudden you've got a problem. Now, culture by itself is a many-faceted thing, and some of the facets are innocuous and irrelevant, basically, to most of us, and may even bring variety to Canadians' life for example, different foods, dress, music, art, and language. But another facet of culture is the ideology, philosophy, religion, and political beliefs of the people. When, when sec successive governments drafted the various pieces of legislation which entrenched official multiculturalism in this country, I think it might be fair to say that they had the best of intentions, at least I hope they did, in trying to promote unconditional acceptance of other cultures and their prevention of discrimination. But did they ever think that the individuals and groups 
that they were trying to protect did not themselves believe in multiculturalism and actually reject other cultures and would like to see them destroyed. For the most part, many of the cultures of the world have come to Canada and have found a place where they can practice many of the things we think of when we uh, think of culture oh. and these people gradually come to accept that they're now Canadian. Canadian first. But many come to this country and use our policy of official multiculturalism to get unearned government largesse while advocating the overthrow of the very government that took them in. They come to get a Canadian passport and then return back to their home country and use the Canadian passport as a get-out-of-hell-free card whenever the unrest <laughs> besets their real home. Now, while Canada has many secular Muslims who do not agree or promote the political ideology of Islamists, without a doubt there's an element of Muslims, usually young men, who are coming to this country to help destroy it. And we are enabling them to do just that with our policy of official multiculturalism. Europe has learned this lesson. The hard way. <laughs> Very hard way. With constant bombings and murders and threats of death as this same group of Islamists use the multicultural laws of European countries to help destroy them from within. Now, Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany was the first world leader to recognize the threat of multiculturalism. But more recently, Prime Minister David Cameron of the UK has voiced his fear that the policy of multiculturalism is fostering terrorism and must be abandoned. Now, what follows is an excerpt from his speech to the 47th Munich Security Conference, which he gave on February 5th. And we'll be back right after this. In the UK, some young men find it hard to identify with the traditional Islam practiced at home by their parents, whose customs can seem staid when, when transplanted to modern Western countries. But these young men also find it hard to identify with Britain too, because we've allowed the weakening of our collective identity. Under the doctrine of state multiculturalism, we've encouraged different cultures to live separate lives apart from each other and apart from the mainstream. We fail to provide a vision of society to which they feel they want to belong. We've even tolerated these segregated communities behaving in ways that run completely counter to our values. So when a white person holds objectionable views, racist views for instance, we rightly condemn them. But when equally unacceptable views or practices come from someone who isn't white, we've been too cautious, frankly, frankly even fearful, to stand up to them. The failure, for instance, of some to confront the horrors of forced marriage, the practice where some young girls are bullied and sometimes taken, when, taken abroad to marry someone who they don't, when they don't want to, is a case in point. This hands-off tolerance has only served to reinforce the sense that not enough is shared. And this all leaves some young Muslims feeling rootless. And the search for something to belong to and something to believe in can lead them to this extremist ideology. Now for sure they don't turn into terrorists overnight, but what we see, and what we see in so many European countries, is a process of radicalization. Internet chat rooms are virtual meeting places where attitudes, attitudes are shared, strengthened and validated. In some mosques, preachers of hate can sow misinformation about the plight of Muslims elsewhere. 
In our communities, groups and organizations led by young, dynamic leaders promote separatism by encouraging Muslims to define themselves solely in terms of their religion. All these interactions can engender a sense of community, a substitute for what the wider society has failed to supply. Now you might say, as long as they're not hurting anyone, what is the problem with all this? Well, I'll tell you why. As evidence emerges about the backgrounds of those convicted of terrorist offences, it is clear that many of them were initially influenced by what some have called non-violent extremists. And they then took those radical beliefs to the next level by embracing violence. And I say this is an indictment of our approach to these issues in the past. And if we're to defeat this threat, I believe it is time to turn the page on the failed policies of the past. So first, instead of ignoring this extremist ideology, we, as governments and as societies, have got to confront it in all its forms. And second, instead of encouraging people to live apart, we need a clear sense of shared national identity that is open to everyone. Let me briefly take each in turn. First, confronting and undermining this ideology. Whether they are violent in their means or not, we must make it impossible for the extremists to succeed. Now, for governments, there are some obvious ways we can do this. We must ban preachers of hate coming to our countries. We must also prescribe organizations that incite terrorism against people at home and abroad. Governments must also be shrewder in dealing with those that, while they're non-violent, are in some cases part of the problem. We need to think much harder about who it's in the public interest to work with. Some organizations that seek to present themselves as a gateway to the Muslim community are showered with public money despite doing little to combat extremism. As others have observed, this is a bit like turning to a sort of right-wing fascist party to fight a violent white supremacist movement. So we should properly judge these organizations. Do they believe in universal human rights, including for women and people of other faiths? Do they believe in equality of all before the law? Do they believe in democracy and the right of people to elect their own government? Do they encourage integration or separation? These are the sorts of questions that we need to ask. Fail these tests and the presumption should be not to engage with these organizations. So no public money, no sharing of platforms with ministers at home. At the same time, we must stop these groups from reaching people in publicly funded institutions like universities or even in the British case, prisons. Some say this is not compatible with free speech and free intellectual inquiry. Well, I say, would you take the same view if these were right-wing extremists recruiting on our campuses? Would you advocate inaction if Christian fundamentalists who believe that Muslims are the enemy were leading prayer groups in our prison? And to those who say these non-violent extremists are actually helping to keep young, vulnerable men away from violence, I say nonsense. 
Would you allow the far-right groups a share of public funds if they promised to help you lure young white men away from fascist terrorism? Of course not. But at root, challenging this ideology means exposing its ideas for what they are, and that is completely unjustifiable. We need to argue that terrorism is wrong in all circumstances. We need to argue that prophecies of a global war of religion pitting Muslims against the rest of the world are nonsense. Now, governments cannot do this alone. The extremism we face is a distortion of Islam, so these arguments, in part, must be made by those within Islam. So let us give voice to those followers of Islam in our own countries, the vast, often unheard majority, who despise the extremists and their worldview. Let us engage groups that share our aspirations. Now, second, we must build stronger societies and stronger identities at home. Frankly, we need a lot less of the passive tolerance of recent years and a much more active, muscular liberalism. A passively tolerant society says to its citizens, as long as you obey the law, we will just leave you alone. It stands neutral between different values. But I believe a genuinely liberal country does much more. It believes in certain values and actively promotes them. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, democracy, the rule of law, equal rights, regardless of race, sex or sexuality. It says to its citizens, this is what defines us as a society. To belong here is to believe in these things. Now, each of us in our own countries, I believe, must be unambiguous and hard-nosed about this defense of our liberty. There are practical things that we can do as well. That includes making sure that immigrants speak the language of their new home and ensuring that people are educated in the elements of a common culture and curriculum. Back home, we're introducing National Citizen Service, a two-month program for 16-year-olds from different backgrounds to live and work together. I also believe we should encourage meaningful and active participation in society by shifting the balance of power away from the state and towards the people. That way, common purpose can be formed as people come together and work together in their neighborhoods. It will also help build stronger pride in local identity so people feel free to say, yes, I am a Muslim, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Christian, but I'm also a Londoner or a Berliner too. It's that identity, that feeling of belonging in our countries that I believe is the key to achieving true cohesion. So let me end with this. This terrorism is completely indiscriminate and has been thrust upon us. It cannot be ignored or contained. We have to confront it with confidence. Confront the ideology that drives it by defeating the ideas that warp so many young minds at their root. And confront the issues of identity that sustain it by standing for much broader and generous vision of citizenship in our countries. Now, none of this will be easy. We will need stamina, patience, and endurance. And it won't happen at all if we act alone. This ideology crosses not just our continent, but all continents. And we are all in this together. At stake are not just lives, it is our way of life. That is why this is a challenge we cannot avoid. It is one we must rise to and overcome. Thank you. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW Radio. Um, you can give us a call at 519-661-3600. And James has done just that, and James is on the line with us now. Hello, James. 
Hello, James. I guess James may not be there. Is he still there? No, he left? Okay, I call her left. <laughs> okay, that was actually a rather long speech by David Cameron. I think it was like nine minutes and 20 seconds long. So I don't blame you, James, for leaving. Oh. Huh. Oh. Hello. Oh, are oh. you there? There, there you are, are James. I'm talking talk now, eh? Yep. Yes, you can talk. Yeah. No, I, I love your program. Thank you. Uh, I believe everybody's created equal. Uh, if I have any animosity or prejudice towards a certain group of people, it seems it's because the government instills that on uh, they force us, you know, they force this stuff on us. Mm-hmm. And the same as the place where I've just retired from, you know, there's always minority groups that seem to get the, uh, I don't know, they seem to have all the rights. And it's not that these people just want the same freedoms as we do. They want above that, like special uh, privileges. Yeah, like whether you're again, again, if you're gay, they want the parade. You know, uh, in this country, it seems as though if you have a breast or turban or you're French Canadian, you have all the rights. So we can't get along with our own people. Never mind anybody else. Now, what do you think of uh, the opinion of your friends and co-workers and family? Are they uh, do they have to share the same views? You think this is a predominant view that you have in the uh, uh, about multiculturalism? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, I love the, pro- the British Prime Minister. Uh, when I said that we can't get along with ourselves, like even Bill Cosby, if you've seen the uh, the two or three page letter he wrote to black people in the states, you know they call themselves Afro Americans, but they're no more Afro American than you and I are. You know. You know, they want their own dictionary, they want this, they want that. Like I say, I believe everybody's created equal, but we're not treated equal. So well, that's about all I have to say, guys. I appreciate Thank that, you. James. Thanks for hey. calling. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Actually, I think uh, Cameron agrees a bit because it was, it was a brave thing of him to say that, you know, when a white person has a criticism, you know, we condemn him. But when someone who's not white, he said, yes, um, we don't condemn that person. Out of fear. Uh, out of fear. And yes. that's the that's the whole issue. And then he talked about ignoring ideology. I've got to tell you, though, I was a little disturbed by his use of right-wing, extreme right, this and that. He's very confused there because here he's calling this this ideology, extreme right wing, and yet the people who are opposed to it, like Geert Wilders, <laughs> is a called extreme right wing. Yes. How do they reconcile those two extreme right wings fighting each other? Not only that, he doesn't talk about the left wing at all, which no. has historically proven to be the most violent. And the left wing is what is fascist. That's the yes. point. You know, and that's what he was avoiding. So he is so, a little muddled in his a thinking. A little muddled right. in his thinking. And then he, t- then he talked about we have to, we have to promote Western values, free speech. So we're going to ban preachers, and we're going. Oh my goodness! Uh, I could actually, go on. Ban- actually, banning the immigration of uh, certain individuals is not. Um, immigration. Immigration is, is a, not a problem. I have no problem with banning certain individuals coming in No, you wouldn't want here. criminals coming in either. But if you have a Canadian citizen in this country, they are free to say whatever they want to say, however stupid it might be. So, as long as it doesn't threaten life, liberty, or property, correct. that's the basic thing. Correct, yes. Now, Cameron's speech actually states in pretty clear terms, I thought, and that's why I, that's why I played it, is because mm-hmm. this is an excellent piece from a major world leader, one of the top world leaders who's finally come to the senses that multiculturalism is a failed policy. He states in no uncertain terms that the notion of multiculturalism has failed and that Great Britain, in Great Britain, as it has in Germany, Mm-hmm. and as it will in the rest of the countries in the Western world, which still cling to this suicidal policy. He's asking for banning immigration, like we said, of anyone who preaches, hey, I've got no problem with that, as long as they're not Canadian citizens, you know. He's asking for the identification of organizations of terrorism, which Canada has done with, for example, Hamas. Um, well, wait right- a minute, you said as long as they're not Canadian citizens. You don't mean that a Canadian citizen who preaches hatred should be allowed into England, do you? 
No, I'm talking about in Canada. Okay, here. yeah. <laughs> no, I'm going to talk about Canadians okay. now. Okay, that was Cameron. Now let's talk about Canada. Right, okay. okay. And Cameron rightly recognized that uh, terrorist groups or terrorist supporting groups or Sharia supporting groups seek validation and endorsement by trying to appear with government officials at events or on talk shows. And I think that should stop. Not necessarily by force, but the government should have no truck with these people, and talk shows and radios and television should not be inviting them onto their shows. Um, if they want to preach their preach their hate, let it do it on their own their own property at their own expense. These same groups are always seeking handouts from government, and uh, under the guise of assisting their culture, and then they turn around and send that money back to their true home to promote Sharia or terrorism, or even to buy weapons here at home. His example that we should restrict speech at universities, I disagree with completely. You'll note that his example of groups, and this is what you got onto, Bob, says we should not fund and should restrict the speech of are what he calls far-right groups. While the far-left groups, the more violent of the two, get no mention at all, of mm -hmm. course, because he is, I think, uh, on that. No, but nobody should spectrum. be funded. Everyone should be operating exactly. under their own steam. Yeah, speech whether the right or the left or even those Muslims who wish to see universal Sharia should be allowed to speak, but on their own property at their own bloody expense, not at government expense. You know, we have the same problem in Canada with the bloc. The bloc is mm -hmm. supported by taxpayer dollars. Yes. Were that not the case, that party would have no money. Yeah. Less money than Freedom Party has, which doesn't get funded <laughs> by the government, right? Now, I wholeheartedly agree with Cameron, however, when he calls on us to actively promote the virtues of Western civilization. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, democracy, yes. the rule of law and equality. However, I believe that this should be done not only by the government, but by those people and organizations who used to extol the virtues of their country, but now have become moral relativists. I'm speaking of the entertainment industry, television, radio, the political pundits, the commentators, but especially the teachers and the university professors. If we as a people do not believe in a culture of freedom, then these Islamists will come in and fill the void. They'll take over by default because we would have let them by our inaction and by our inability to correctly identify freedom and to voice its virtues. It's coincidental, I think, that Cameron calls for an education in a common culture and curriculum, while Saturday's National Post has a headline, quote, immigration families try to opt out of curriculum, unquote. Particularly a dozen um, Muslim families who recently arrived in Canada told a Winnipeg school division that they want their children excused from compulsory elementary school music and co-ed physical education programs for religious and cultural reasons. The response should be that you're perfectly free to set up your own school, but if you want your children to go to this one, then this is the curriculum. End of story. Surprisingly, Cameron briefly touched on what we should be, uh, on what should be the proper solution for this problem. He said, quote, shift the balance of power away from the state and towards the people. If he does anything, this shift could do the most good of all his recommendations. The problem began when government got involved in something it should have left well, eno well enough alone, culture. Government should not fund ethnic societies, cultural events, music recitals, parades, carnivals, or craft shows, all with the express purpose of promoting someone's culture. It's not a proper function of government, period. Finally, Prime Minister Cameron calls on all Western nations to confront the perils of isolationist nature 
of official multiculturalist policies. He asks all countries to follow the lead of himself and Chancellor Merkel. And I think whatever political leader in Canada has the courage to demand that our policy of official multiculturalism be scrapped would be elected in a landslide. Unfortunately, our current leaders just don't have what it takes. Pity. Up next, we'll hear Angela Merkel and her speech denouncing multiculturalism. Nowhere near as long as uh, <laughs> no. David Cameron's. And when we come back, Bob will share his insight on what is happening with Gert Wilders. More on multiculturalism when we return, right after this. In Frankfurt, two out of three children under five years old have a migrant background. In the early 1960s, we brought the guest workers to Germany. Now, they're living with us. We lied to ourselves for a while. We said they won't stay long. One day, they'll be gone. But this is not the case. Of course, the multicultural approach, living side by side and being happy with each other, this approach has failed utterly. That is why integration is so important. Those who want to participate in our society must not only comply with the law and follow the constitution, but above all, must learn our language. They must know German. It must be given absolute value. This means that the demand for integration is one of our main tasks for the near future. on those issues. He's liberal uh, on, on, on most issues of religion, on freedom of speech and freedom of movement. His, his whole argument, it's not because of someone's skin color, that's irrelevant. It's, there's a particular religion that he believes is completely contrary to the European ideas of multiculturalism and liberalism and freedom. He may very well be right. Uh, in, in many ways, I think there's a, there's a good argument for, for, for him being right. Mm. Uh, but, but you're faced with a totally different situation now. Uh, and the, and the question really isn't whether he's right or wrong. Really? It's, it's whether we have to appease to the point of, it's not of silencing... Even, it's, not, it's not even really... It's not, it's well, not, it's not appeasement. No, I don't sure. think it's appeasement. It's yeah. Fear? Yeah. Fear is exactly what it is, eh, Robert? Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where Robert and I are talking about... I guess the, the coming end of multiculturalism, I don't see it, but we're talking about it now, eh? So, uh, as many of you may not know, <laughs> Geert Wilders, of course, of the, du the Dutch parliamentarian, is uh, being retried in Amsterdam, started this past Monday, on five charges of discrimination and inciting hatred, which could result in a hefty fine or jail time if he was found guilty. Interesting, you know, Ayn Rand wrote, uh, quote, there is only one power that determines the course of history, just as it determines the course of every individual life the power of man's rational faculty, the power of ideas. If you, want, if you know a man's convictions, you can predict his actions. If you understand the dominant philosophy of a society, you can predict its course. That's the very thing I think it, that is in the mind of Geert Wilders in terms of his comments before the, uh, the Dutch courts. Now, 
this uh, his original trial was was of course put off and canceled for a number of reasons, including uh, the fact that there were some instances of interference that surfaced in the course of the trial, and they found mm-hmm. out that the judge knew the, this guy, and it was oh just a mess. But uh, nevertheless, they went ahead with it anyway on Didn't Monday. Didn't the prosecution actually want to stop it at one point? Yes, and why they're <laughs> still going ahead with it, in light of the fact that Wilders has had just had that election victory, and and really, I don't know what he's supposed to be guilty of, but I guess he's guilty of of, of upsetting people, and that's the real that's his real crime, not so much what he's saying, but. Um, you know, I was looking at an article here that said that the zeal and determination with which the court is pursuing Geert Wilders, even in the face of so many opportunities to put a halt to this farce, beseeks the application of a kind of law that's foreign to Western principles of justice. We should all be alarmed that Sharia law appears to have taken hold in our courtrooms and in the social fabric of Western nations against the wishes and unbeknownst to the majority of citizens. And I would put it to you, Robert, it's also happening in Canada. But of course People aren't aware of it. As I found out very amazingly earlier this week, and I'll talk about that later. Um, Geert Wilders gave a speech in the Amsterdam court, and when I saw it, I said, wow, this is really a a big statement that he made, and I think I should share it with you, because it really speaks to something that we want to avoid ourselves here in the West, although Europe is part of the West, by that I mean North America, of course. And he writes, this is is Geert Wilders speaking, and this is his uh, speech in the court this past Monday in Amsterdam. Quote, The lights are going out all over Europe, all over the continent where our culture flourished and where man created freedom, prosperity, and civilization. Everywhere the foundation of the West is under attack. All over Europe, the elites are acting as protectors of an ideology that has been bent on destroying us since the 14th century. An ideology that has sprung from the desert and can only produce deserts because it does not give people freedom. The Islamic Mozart, the Islamic Gerard Reeve, who's a Dutch author, the Islamic Bill Gates, they do not exist because without freedom, there is no creativity. The ideology of Islam is especially noted for killing and oppression and can only produce societies that are backwards and impoverished. Surprisingly, the elites do not want to hear any criticism of this ideology. My trial is not an isolated incident. Only fools believe it is. All over Europe, multicultural elites are waging total war against their populations. Their goal is to continue the strategy of mass immigration, which will ultimately result in an Islamic Europe, a Europe without freedom, Eurabia. By the way, that's been (laughs) the war since the 14th century back and forth. And then he says it again, the lights are going out all over Europe. Anyone who thinks or speaks individually is at risk. Freedom-loving citizens who criticize Islam are merely suggest that there is a relationship between Islam and the crime of or honor killing must suffer and are threatened or criminalized. Those who speak the truth are in danger. The lights are going out all over Europe. Everywhere the Orwellian thought police are at work on the lookout for thought crimes everywhere, casting the populace back within the confines where it is allowed to think. This trial is not about me. It is about something much greater. Freedom of speech is not the property of those who happen to belong to the elites of a country. It is an inalienable right, the birthright of our people. For centuries, battles have been fought for it, and now it is being sacrificed to please a totalitarian ideology. Future generations will look back at this trial and wonder who was right, who defended freedom, and who wanted to get rid of it. The lights are going out all over Europe. Our freedom is being restricted everywhere, so I repeat, 
what I said here last year. It is not only the privilege, but also the duty of free people, and hence also my duty as a member of the Dutch Parliament to speak out against any ideology that threatens freedom. Hence, it is a right and duty to speak the truth about the evil ideology that is called Islam. I hope that freedom of speech will emerge triumphant from this trial. I hope not only that I shall be acquitted, but especially that freedom of speech will continue to exist in the Netherlands and in Europe. What a great speech. End of quote. And for that, I mean, that's the basic opinion for which he is being tried. Ah, there's a right winger for you, that's eh? A, now, there, he's the extreme right wing that he's yeah. been called an extreme right wing. Now, would Cameron call him extreme right winger along with the extreme right wing of Islam? <laughs> I think so. I think you he know, would. There's no differentiation. It's just that the left, the left does not understand what the right is. I don't even think the right understands what the right is. But it comes down to, uh, you know, what is a culture? We, we talked about this, Robert. You and I had a, one of our fights. <laughs> I was going to say debate, but, you know, we always get down when it comes to these, to these uh, you know, discussions on a definition. And, and it's funny where the, where the root of the word comes, culture. I looked up in uh, the Funk and Wagonals. It starts with the, the cultivation. That's sort of the root, you know, of, of plants or animals, especially to improve the breed. But, of course, in the general sense, it means a development and refinement of mind, morals, or taste. The condition thus produced, refinement, a specific stage in the development of civilization, the sum total of the attainments and learned behavior patterns of any specific period, race, or people. Now, culture, uh, you know, Ayn Rand ag agreed with that, too, with that basic development. She pointed out that, you know, or, or definition, rather, and she pointed out just as there is no such thing as a collective or racial mind, so there is no such thing as collective or racial achievement. There are only individual minds and individual achievements, and a culture is not some anonymous product of undifferentiated masses, but the sum of the intellectual achievements of individual men. In other words, uh, Bob, if I could just interject, mm. there's... According to Rand, there would be no such thing as necessarily a black culture or an Asian culture. If you're Asian and you live in Canada, you don't necessarily share the cultural um, practices of somebody no. over in Asia. And if you're black in Canada, you don't share the same culture as some black person in Trinidad it's, or in, in the Kenya or anything like that. It's the same as the Freedom Party ad we were talking about last week. You know, um, Muhammad Ali, is he a great black athlete or was he the greatest athlete? Exactly. And that's exactly the point. Color has nothing Co to do with culture. Color has nothing to do with it. And, you know, the whole thing is that the individuals who influence a nation, and Bill Gates would be one of those, for example, as was taken before because of his inventions. It, it created a culture. Part of our culture now is the computer. It's, a, it's part of it. We can talk to each other. And boy, has that made a big difference to what we're seeing happening in the Mideast right now, where mm -hmm. there's a revolution going on. But, you know, the acceptance, says Rand, of the achievement of an individual by other individuals does not represent any sort of ethnicity. And this is interesting. She points out how it represents a cultural division of labor in a free market. It represents a conscious choice on the part of all people involved. The achievement may be scientific, technological, industrial, intellectual, or aesthetic. That's where we got into a bit of an argument on whether fashion and things of that nature were really part of a culture. They are. I agree with you. But it wasn't the part I was going to focus on. That's what our argument was about. <laughs> and... Um, but uh, that's what we would call a, a culture. The tradition has nothing to do with it. Tradition's challenged daily, constantly, and that that's the whole point. Now, interestingly, I think you could say that we have uncivilized cultures, just as you can have a civilized culture. So a culture could be civilized or uncivilized. That's right. They're not no. all equal. Cultures no. are not all equal. 
And multiculturalism, I think, equates the uncivilized with the civilized. Yes. And that's what's happening. And it prevents any judgment by the more civilized culture, but takes no action against the less civilized culture. Now, what do we mean by civilization? We say it here all the time. A civilization is, is that society which prevents the use of force in human relationships. Now, that pretty well puts out any kind of autocracy or theocracy. They're not even on the map. No. So they're not civilized by that standard. So a civilized culture is one in which the initiation of force by anyone against another, including the government, by the way, is prohibited. Civilization and the accumulation of knowledge cannot function in an environment of violence and destruction. That's the danger to civilization when we have wars. We don't want to see these great, even the paintings, getting back to the aesthetic. And, and even things we might not agree with in history, say the churches and the religions and things of the past. You don't want to see those things destroyed. That's a whole other issue. You know, every, every great civilization had a history of uncivilized behavior at some time in its past. Great civilization and empires tend to, you know, die when they revert to a, a less civilized na uh, nature. And that's what we see happening, unfortunately, in many places around the world today. That's what Gerd Wilders means when he's saying the lights are going out. The lights are going out. The lights being the lights of intellectual discussion, of, of even um, civilization itself, really, yes. because force is being used and, and people aren't doing things about it. So we're going to take a quick break here. And um, what we're going to hear, on, particularly on the other side of the bumper, is an interesting uh, brief discussion between the late Tom Snyder and the late Ayn Rand <laughs> over uh, religion as philosophy and how it affects the world. And we'll be back after this. Don't uh, pass judgment on other people, or you might get judged yourself. What? I said, don't pass judgment on other people, or else you might get judged too. Oh, me? Yes. Oh, thank you very much. Well, not just you, all of you. That's a nice good. What? How much do you want for the good? I don't. You can have it. Have it? Yes. Why do you think that religions have attracted more people to their philosophies than objectivism has attracted people to its? Well, first of all, they had much longer time. Now, remember, mm -hmm. religion is older than objectivism. I don't think I would want to attract as many people as religions do. But the real and serious answer is this. Religion is a primitive form of philosophy. Because what religion and philosophy have in common is that it's a system of background premises. Uh, it gives you a frame of reference, a context, in fundamental terms. And then you leave the concretes of your mm -hmm. life accordingly. So religion is primitive canned philosophy, if you want to. It gives you canned answers. And it says here, you can rely on it. You don't need to think. It will tell you what to do in practically every situation. Just obey us. Take us on faith. Well, why do people accept it? Because nobody can live without a philosophy. Mm -hmm. Even the most primitive, unthinking yeah. man needs something to tie all of his actions, ideas, and his life together. He needs integration. 
religion provides it to him ready-made. Philosophy, properly, does the same thing, but it offers an idea, a context to his mind, and it demands of him that he judge it, that he use his own intelligence to understand and then to accept the kind of basic premises that he'll live his life by. That was Ayn Rand speaking to Tom Snyder way back in 1979. Of course, Ayn Rand wrote an incredible essay called Faith and Force, Destroyers of the Modern World, and where she basically pointed out that faith and force, when they're combined, create what we know as, as a theocracy. Right? That's, that's what a theocracy is. And these theocracies are incompatible with freedom and with life on earth because, of course, the true religious cell strives for the next life, not for this life. Uh, an afterlife, uh, death and from our t- frame of reference, and does not live for this life, the only life we really have. And that has been a problem that Ian Hersiali kept bringing up with the whole issue of theocracy in the Mideast nations. Interestingly enough, here in Canada, the Ontario legislature has been moving towards more divi- divisive cultural policies at an ever-increasing pace. The McGuinty government, with the full support of the Hudak opposition, who, by the way, also wanted to continue with faith-based, faith-based financing even after the last election, uh, has reintroduced race-based schools, income-based schools, and rather than eliminate prayer from the legislature altogether, brought in several more prayers from differing religions to open the daily legislature. <laughs> I mean, this is... All the, conflicting. All conflicting, and all of this has been happening since basically 9-11, right? So... Is our legislature responsible to a deity, to several deities, or to the people? Freedom Party has an election ad out on this, advocating the removal of all official prayer from the legislature. Official, notice the word official. None of the other parties even want to talk about it and continue to support this politically correct form of multiculturalism at their own risk. And uh, so I'm wondering which of them will soon be having to say what Merkel and Cameron have been saying to their publics, because eventually that's going to be visited upon our politicians as well. I don't want to be the guy to have to say this and have to go through all this. And, you know, it's interesting that the more religious and less secular a nation is, the more poverty there generally is within that culture. And that's only natural because when it comes to governance, religion is definitely not compatible with freedom and leads to restrictions that prevent the creation of wealth. A culture which, for example, regards business activity as evil or at best as a necessary evil is likely going to be a society that, put break, that puts brakes on the creation of wealth. If altruism is a disease from which your government suffers, then everyone's in trouble. I previously broadcast an entire hour of Just Right on this theme. This was before you joined the show, Robert. Mm-hmm. And I remembered pointing out how, you know, even if you look in South America and compare various countries around the world, you'll find patterns like, you know, the Roman Catholic countries are invariably socialist, generally poor or struggling, while other religions or other religious groups within a free society can clearly have higher incomes than others because of the practices and customs that comprise that culture. For example, there are differences in attitudes towards money, for example, between Jews, Muslims, and Christians. The root of all good. Yes. This alone has historical ramifications on a grand scale that very few people realize. And, you know, in defending their faith, in in a February 2nd, 2011 posting from World Net Daily, it is reported that, quote, many Muslim scholars in North America argue that jihad essentially means struggle and is not necessarily violent. Well, I read that, and I'm thinking, not necessarily? Not necessarily violent? 
you know, but violent most of the time or whenever? Or how does that work? Under what circumstances is violence necessary under jihad and or Islam? The question screams for an answer, yet I don't hear anybody asking it. Well, you know, the old saying, when persuasion fails, <laughs> use force. This is the philosophy of the rapist, of the thief, and of the murderer. Violence is always necessary when someone's trying to force an irrationality upon someone else against their, their will. Duh. So as long as you obey or submit, which is actually the essential meaning of Islam, then violence is not necessary. You see, that's why it's a peaceful religion. So to put it down into a finer point, but, submit or die. Well, essentially, yeah. And what happens when you, as soon as you disobey? By criticizing Allah or by converting to another religion or by being critical of Islam, well, then violence is necessary. And that's what we've been seeing. And if so, well, that's uncivilized, isn't it? Totally. And then there's the word struggle. We keep hearing this word struggle. Okay, jihad is struggle. Interesting to see the philosophic roots of fascism here. Not only does jihad mean struggle, but the book for which Geert Wilders is being accused of comparing the Koran to, Hitler's Mein Kampf, also means my struggle. Mm. Hello, hello. <laughs> struggle against yeah. what? Is, is this connection working, you know? Uh, yeah, against what? What's all the struggling going on here? Well, what are evil philosophies always struggling with? With reality and with reason. Exactly. And that's the struggle. Struggles of that nature inevitably end in destruction and death. So why should we be surprised by what happened to Hitler and by the phenomenon of the suicide bomber? Struggles of that, you know, it's, it's the use of violence. That's the ultimate symptom of someone who's weak, by the way, and not someone who, who's showing you a sign of strength. Unable to convince, to persuade, or justify a position, the person who resorts to violence becomes a brute. And even in the act of trying to convince, persuade, or justify an irrational view, quote, voluntarily, must resort to misrepresentation, accusations, expressions of hatred for those who disagree and at best halt any debate on the subject by resorting to attacks on free speech. Now, what happens when a culture based on these non-values comes into a contact with a culture that deeply respects the values of individual freedom and freedom of speech, at least in spirit, if not in practice, okay? <laughs> well, the real debate in this whole, or the real culprit, sorry, in, in this whole debate is our own culture, Western culture, which has abandoned principles of freedom in favor of principles of fascism. And this is, it's done independently of anybody's insistence. This is the clear direction towards which we've turned. And in this case, I'm not narrowly defining cultures being Canadian, American, German, British, European, but as Western. Western culture generally distinguished itself from all other cultures by being genuinely, here's the joke, multicultural, in the sense that all peaceful cultures and philosophies here were welcome, since they could coexist. Unfortunately, Islamism and Islamists are so gross a phenomenon to the average human being that no one ever expected it possible for humanity to descend to the level of what we've seen, you know, been seeing in the Mideastern countries where theocracy reigns supreme. You know, truly a religious concept, hell on earth. And it's funny that you mentioned uh, get your get your uh, get out of hell free card <laughs> by coming to Canada. Passport. Yes. Um, you know, there are liberally-minded Muslims, you have to be aware of this, but they have a unique struggle of their own, and that's protecting themselves from Islamists who believe that violent jihad is necessary against them. Ayan Hirsi Ali was one such individual. Tarak Fatah was another. He had to resign in August 2006 from the Muslim Canadian Congress over concerns for his safety. 
He was then replaced by another liberally-minded Muslim, Farzana Hassan, who has also recently stepped down from that position, though I'm not really certain why. So, you know, on that note, we're getting close to the end of the show now, I I did want to say that this past Monday, I was at a taping of CTS's new show uh, On the Frontline with Christine Williams. I've done a lot of shows with her before, but not this one. This is a very different one. And it's due to, this is taped, it's not live. It's due to air on CTS this Saturday evening at 10 p.m. and then again on Sunday evening at 7 p.m., as I discovered. Now, on that show, I appear with Farzana Hassan, who replaced Tarek Fatah. And uh, the subject was, hate crimes, where do we draw the line? And our discussion was preceded by a brief interview with Mark Harding, uh, a Christian pastor whose comments to Christine on the show seemed to me more incendiary than those for which he was subject to a Canadian court order forcing him, quote, to serve 340 hours of community service under the, under the direction of Mohammed Ashraf of the Islamic Society of North America, end quote. So I'm kind of curious to see if CTS is going to air all of those comments unedited. I made, up a point, I made a point of bringing up Geert Wilders on the show, and uh, this, it came up a few times. But now the problem is I can't really remember too many of the details of what I said in my conversation. This show is very different from other talk shows as it runs only half an hour, and the interviews were very extremely tightly timed, you know, no notes, no callers, no seats, can't even sit down. So no time to elaborate on finer points. So uh, like everyone else, I'll have to wait till the show airs to see what I said. So that's this Saturday <laughs> if somebody wants to catch it. And uh, I do mention that quickly because um, we should mention, too, Robert, that we're not going to be here next week. Oh, exactly. Right. Yes, yes, we'll be back in two weeks as CHRW dedicates its program next programming next week to Black History Month. And so Robert and I will return on uh, February 24th. But if you're interested in our comments and views on Black History Month, we did do that last year on the show, our February 11th show, Just Right 138, which you can check out at uh, Just Right Media. Org. So, uh, before we go for two weeks, any other points that you might have wanted to raise before we left, Robert? I've got one little update. Um, anything on your mind? No, not, not in particular. particular. Just wanted to say, our subject last week, um, we were talking about the copyright issue we had. Yes. And um, CTV sent us a letter saying that they're going to unilaterally remove for the second time our close Ontario's race-based public schools on the ground that had a brief CTV excerpt in it. Supposedly. Yeah, and, well, it did. I'm not denying that, but I don't think there was any copyright violation. However, mm-hmm. they haven't done so, so nothing. It's still there. The end no of that problem. story. End of that story, I think. So I guess that's the end of this story then today, too. Are we all done for this round then, Robert? It was a pretty hot topic. Multiculturalism yes. really gets the fires going in a lot of it people. It does. And there's still going to be a lot. To well, as our, as our caller James it. said, uh, it's not necessarily because people disagree with the uh, re- the um, culture of anybody else. Is that it's there's a perceived and actual special privilege given to some people with mo- official multiculturalism. You know, I, I honestly don't think that bothers too many people. You know, it really bothers them hmm. having their own freedom taken away. They don't really care that the government's taken their money and given it to the other guy. What they really seems they get to. upset. <laughs> they get more upset when, if they criticize that practice, that they get punished for it. That's yeah. what that's what the upset is. Yeah. It's not so much what we give to the other people. It's what they seem, and it's not them. Again, it's our own culture. Quote, uh, what what's being taken away from us? Well, that's a good point. You it's know. not necessarily. You know, I think when the lights go out, as they seem to be doing, I don't know that we can actually blame the Islamists for it. We can blame ourselves for letting them do it. 
and letting anyone else take advantage. I mean, right. if you put a gun in the middle of a table of a bunch, a bunch of people who are fighting with each other, what do you expect them to do with that gun? And that's what happens with government. As soon as you yep. get government in there and make something official, hand that power out to one group against the other, it won't be long before you have factions fighting all over the place. And that is the whole problem with, with all forms of government that aren't truly democratic, that is, where... The, the power originates in the, the people being governed and not through some god, through some individuals, through some other imaginary force. Well, I felt really compelled to play Cameron's speech that he gave uh, just five days ago and Merkel's mm -hmm. speech that she gave just recently. Very significant events. It, it, it offers a little bit of hope that our leaders out there are finally seeing the writing on the wall. Maybe it'll come this side of the ocean too. We can only hope. Okay, well, I guess that's it for this week then. We have to get out of here. When we continue our journey in the right direction... So we'll be back in two weeks. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and we'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be... I'm permanently exhausted. I saw a sign on the side of the road the other day. It said, tiredness can kill. I never knew that. You know, last Saturday, I stayed up all night watching movies. I could have died. <laughs> Nobody tells you these things. I love sleeping. I think sleeplessness is the root cause of all the problems in society today. People don't get enough sleep. You know? They work too hard and they're stressed out. And they make mistakes and commit crimes and grow long beards and run amok in the workplace with automatic weapons. You know? 